everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we discuss deep thematic points about the Parsha. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. This Breshit series is titled Chosenness and Choices. The book of Breshit is propelled forward by God's chosen representatives, Adam, Cain, Noach, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. But these messengers impact the world because of the choices they make. And it is the nexus between being chosen and the human choices that actualize this divine will in the world that we are exploring in these episodes. Today's conversation was recorded on October 31st. I'm just recording all the dates in which our conversations are recorded because the world has been changing so rapidly that I feel it's important for me to say that. Parshat Toldot focuses on the life of Yitzchak and opens with Rivka's approaching him to pray on her behalf after having difficulty conceiving a child. The text recounts that Yitzchak marries at 40 and becomes a father at 60. That's 20 years without children. Rivka becomes pregnant with twins who already in utero are described as rivals. They are presented as archetypically dissimilar. They look different, they have different occupations, and are each favored by a different parent. Each parent, in fact, favors the child most similar to them. Yitzchak has his culinary preferences and a hunter's son who knows how to prepare foods to his liking. And Rivka and Yaakov are both skilled at sophisticated, if not deceptive, planning. The competition between the sons continues when Yaakov seizes an opportunity to buy Esav's birthright, which he gives up quite hastily. The stories after this, famine in the land, wife as a sister, were discussed to a certain degree in last week's episode, in which we focus on Yitzchak and Rivka's relationship. The final scene of the Parsha is really its climax, wherein Yaakov plots with Rivka to retrieve the blessing of the firstborn. The path Yaakov pursues to become or to actualize his role as God's chosen messenger really sits at the focus of today's conversation. Today, I welcome a new guest to the podcast, Rabbanit Ann Gordon, who is the deputy editor of Ops and Blogs at the Times of Israel. She's a veteran educator living in Jerusalem. She co-hosts both the daily podcast, Talking Talmud, and the Chochmat Nashim podcast. Her forthcoming book is part of Safaria's Word by Word Fellowship, and it is a study of Proverbs, the book of Mishlei, in rabbinic literature. Uh, Anne, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I feel such a part of the Matan family. It's really wonderful. I'm really happy to have you here. I think your voice is a great contribution in general to the world of uh, of women's Torah, and I'm happy for it to be part of these Matan conversations. These episodes in the book of Breshit are trying to tackle both really, really big partiot and also very, very big ideas. So our conversation today, uh, I think right, we're going to sort of try and figure out a little bit the the beginnings of Yaakov and his journey, uh, um, uh, his role in the house of Yitzchak, his role as a an inheritor of the of the religious, cultural, spiritual heritage of Avraham. So why don't you bring us into that, wherever it feels right for you? So I want to take a step back, I think, even before we get to Yaakov, because our Parsha opens with a discussion of Avraham. It repeats information that we already know from last week's Parsha in terms of Yitzchak now getting married, and we're about to embark on the children that will come from them. 
it seems very important to the Parsha to re- recap this, to bring us into the family tree, that this is the family line from Avraham, and this is the inheritance. When you talk about the chosen and their choices, I feel like this Parsha is front and center as an example of where we both have God's apparent selection of this family and how that's going to be uh, a generation upon generation kind of lineage. And on the other hand, we have a tremendous involvement from various human players making choices and and then having to live with them. And I think if you go back to the sections of Brishit, I know we're still in, very much in Brishit, but if you go to the early chapters where you have what I like to call the begats, right? Mm-hmm. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Holidet, 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 right? The, the, you just have generations. It's just the genealogies. That's all there is. You can sit over them and compare them to Chronicles. You can check, is there any nuance in the language? But it's really basically the list of the family tree. Here, there's no need for a list of a family tree. Mm-hmm. If you go back to last week's Parsha, you have all this information. We know that Rivka and Yitzchak are now going to be married. That's... That's where we are in the yeah. in the family stories unfolding. I think the fact that it stops here, so to speak, that there's a pause to reintroduce this genealogy is to remind us that's what this family is about. We need to move forward. I say bring the torch forward on the Avraham line. Who is going to inherit? And what are they going to do in the world as the heirs of, to Avraham? Yeah, and it also seems very clear that these 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 boys come into the world uh, very much knowing that there is something fraught, right? There's something fraught about the relationship. There's something fraught about about what they have to do here. I'm curious what your take is on Rifka's re- revelation of the prophecy, right? What what do you think about that in terms of, you know, does she share with others? Uh, I, I'll just as I was reviewing this parasha again to prepare for this conversation. I was thinking about the fact that it's clear. Well, I usually think about in the context vis-a-vis Yitzchak, right? Did she tell Yitzchak about it? Uh, but what seems very clear to me is that Yaakov knows what's happened. Meaning if she, I could be wrong, but that, that's how I read it this time when I was reading through the Parsha. Because if he didn't know about the prophecy, he needed to know about it in order to go along with all of her plans. Like they, I don't think it was just a, hey, my Ema loves me, right? And I want to sort of do whatever she says. But there's something here tells me that that he knows about the prophecy of uh, of that that she's received. Well, I, it's very unclear that Asav knows about it. Uh, he seems a little bit a little bit more oblivious. I'm curious to what your take is on that. So I find Rivka to be really a fascinating personality, specifically in this parsha. We know who she is from the previous parsha. We know that she's an active person and a take charge kind of person. We certainly know that she's a balat chesed, yeah. all of the watering of the camels and so on. But here we see her in distress, right? She has what we would know today to be a difficult pregnancy. I don't know that we would necessarily go to inquire of God to find out why someone is having a difficult pregnancy, but that's what she does. And the answer is that there are, right, we have these two nations warring in her womb. That's not, you know, that's not like a normal pregnancy, not only in her experience of it, but also in the prophecy. It's not, oh, you're going to have a wonderful baby boy which is the message to Sarah, for example, Mm -hmm. right? You're going to be, she's very old. We don't expect her to bear a child at that age. 
but it isn't, there's no complication there. Here, this is very complicated. I don't know what Rivka told Yitzchak. I don't know what Rivka told Yaakov and Esav. I think that that question is really interesting when we think about what happens later. And I think that, yes, I think that Rivka probably had to either clue him in, clue Yaakov in to some degree to get him to go along with the subterfuge in going into Yitzchak all dressed up and with the favorite foods that Rivka has prepared while Esav is out hunting for them. Or maybe by dint of her own strong force force of personality, Yaakov did what his mom said to do. Mm-hmm. That I think that's a possibility because we know who she is. Um, what I think is particularly interesting about this distress is that it takes her out of herself as we know her to be that strong personality. She's distraught. Yitzchak has prayed on her behalf that she should have a baby. She's barren at the beginning of the, of the Parsha. And then she's not happy with the results, so to speak, in the pregnancy itself. I'm not talking about as, as the mother of the boys. Um, and I've, I, I'll note, you know, Rivka's not on the list of the Niviot, of the prophetesses that's in Masachet uh, Megillah. We have a list of seven prophetesses. But here it says she's going to go talk to God. She gets a direct answer from God. I feel like, isn't that the definition of a prophet? Somebody who talks to God and gets a direct answer. And the commentaries, Rashi and many others, go to great lengths to explain that she didn't go directly to God. She used an intermediary. She went to the house of Shem Ever. She spoke to Avraham. Somebody interceded in her behalf to bring her question to God. And I think the reason is found, and this is a little bit of a stretch, I understand, but it rings true to me, in the Rambam's description of what it takes to be a prophet in Moran Nevuchim, the third section of Moran Nevuchim, the guide of the perplexed, where he talks about a prophet being somebody who is wealthy and so on, but part of what he's talking about is peace of mind. And Rivka, for all that she seemed to have great peace of mind in last week's Parsha, and she seems to know exactly what she wants to do with bringing, with Yaakov bringing in the food to Yitzchak, at the beginning, she's not herself. And I don't, and I think that the question of her prophecy, again, speaks to your question, to your theme of choices, and to what extent does a person get involved? If Rivka thinks that Rav Yavod Sa'ir means that the older will serve the younger, then does she need to make sure that that happens, or is it going to happen anyway? I wonder if the fact that she's left off the list is because she receives is that she receives a word of God, but she doesn't tell anybody. I mean, it might be another way of them expressing their opinion that this was kept to herself. And a prophecy kept to yourself is no prophecy at all, right? There's something about things like this that are meant to be some sort of declaration. That also might be a little bit of a drasha there, but it's also an interesting question. I think it also kind of reminds me of a quote from Shmuel Klitzner's book, Wrestling Jacob. He actually was our guest last year for this Parsha. But a quote that he has here, I believe, I believe it was from really earlier in, in, his, in the book, somewhere towards the introduction. And he says, he speaks specifically about, uh, about the figures in Sefer Breshit. And he says there, for the, for the most part, the in, we have the internal struggles of human beings, okay, meaning what we have in Breshit, uh, to create destiny out of fate and to achieve an identity that is profoundly human, while at the same time moving in harmony with and in pursuit of a divine vision or mandate. I mean, that is exactly what we're describing here with Rivka, right? We have this dance, right? We have this divine 
vision. And now the question is, how do we go about putting it into practice? And he continues the idea of the fulfillment of divine promise through human struggle. Indeed, the very biblical idea of transcendence through actualization of the divine image within us is a very tricky business. Uh, and, and I think that that's sort of the the challenge that we're faced with in the beginning of this Parsha, meaning if this is really a prophetic vision, then how exactly is it going to play out? She clearly understands the vision as being that Yaakov is supposed to be the leader, meaning with all due respect to the ambiguous syntax, it's very clear how, how Rifka understands this. And now the question becomes, you know, how do we, how do we go about, how do we go about actualizing that? The Parsha also, if I could say it as the narrator, the narrator is also sympathetic to to Yaakov being the leader, meaning we have in the very little bit of story we have before the Parsha then goes off to talk about Yitzchak, right? It, we have a little bit of a paragraph there about the boys being born. And then we have the story of the stealing of, uh, sorry, the buying, not the stealing, that's later, the buying of the Bechorah. That story very clearly presents Esav, not as an evil person in the way that Chazal ended up presenting him later, but they present him as somebody who, well, if you don't take your Bechorah seriously, then you certainly shouldn't get that, should get that job meaning that that story presents uh presents something interesting both asa of not being somebody who values his role as the bachor and yaakov being somebody who thinks that it could be purchased which is its own question what that means to purchase the birthright uh, i think asav doesn't seem to think that that was a valid purchase because when he later meets his father he's confused about what happens and he realizes that only when the bracha is given to yaakov is this actually something serious meaning it, it also seems like asav and yaakov are not really on the same page there uh with that with that situation of the bukhorah the yaakov thinks that oh, you know he's bought it fair and square and asav thinks that it really wasn't much of a big deal he got a good meal out of it and he went and he went on his merry way. So I don't know, I'm curious also your thoughts about, about that part of the story. So I'm going to raise some questions, right? Yeah. What is Yaakov doing here? Yaakov is making food. You know, his brother comes in hungry. Uh, often I think people say, hi, I've made soup. Would you like some? Yeah. And instead, <laughs> Yaakov goes ahead with a deal-making shenanigans, right? Yes. This question of, you know, he's is he... Ah, yes, he's he's selling it, but he's kind of putting one over on his brother Asav, who comes in fatigued, worn out, you know, complaining. And instead of being nice and kind, he's, again, kind of manipulating the situation. If he knows from his mother that he's supposed to be the leader, then maybe he's trying to engineer a way that he's going to get the birthright. The Bechorat, you know, this, this question of how can it be possible for a person to usurp the place of the Bechor, of yes. the firstborn. Yes. Primogenitor was a, a real thing back in the day, that fancy word. And it seems to be that we know this from like the Newsy tablets. They have all this parallels to the ancient Near East world where there was the possibility of purchasing the Bechorah, the primogenitor. Um, and in Halacha and in the Torah, we don't have that. So Esav might have just thought that he was doing what was seems to be currency in the surrounding environment, that he could, in fact, switch the Bechorah, even though Torah doesn't allow it later. It could be that it really wasn't that important to him. It doesn't seem that he's so into following the line of Avraham at that point, right? He's the older son, but he's doing his thing, right? He went out to hunt in the field. He comes back fatigued and famished. And then we have, I believe it's Nechama Libots who pointed this out first, or at least first for me, you know, this verse where, in fact, 
Everything happens very fast. Mm-hmm. Yaakov gave Esav the bread and this lentil soup. We have verb after verb after verb after verb. Esav is certainly the hunter in this way, right? He's he's not pausing. It doesn't tell us about the brachot that he made before he ate his food, right? There's no thanks given to Yaakov at this point either, right? It's simply very brusque, very abrupt action. And the last verb there, vayivez, and he disparaged or he despised the birthright, I think is what you said. The narration here favors Yaakov, right? The narration is that Esav got up and walked away from the birthright. Yes, fine, there was a technical purchase, but he wasn't into it. My question always was, if Yaakov has legitimately purchased the birthright, then what's all the subterfuge with the brachot? Yes. Right? Shouldn't he be able to say, hey, Dad, I bought this from Esav. Don't be mad at us. We had a transaction, and now I'm here to get my bracha. And that's not what happens. That's not what happens from Rivka. That's not what happens from Yaakov or Yitzchak or Esav afterwards when he says, Yaakovini zepamayim, you've tricked me twice. And I think upon that hinges, we can hold off on it, but another element of this story of who is going to be the leader, who is making the choices, and how do they bring this prophecy that originally went to Rivka to, to bear in their lives. It doesn't seem so simple. The fact that there's trickery involved is, is I think, off-putting to, to us now as generations who come to learn this, and we want everybody to be completely above board. What do you mean that Yaakov told some lies? What do you mean that Yaakov put one over on his brother? It doesn't seem right. And yet, here we are. Look, I, I think that the question of of why do they need to then continue the scene with, with Yitzchak, which we'll get to in a moment. We'll go to that scene there seems to have been some sort of understanding on the part of of Rivka and Yaakov that that purchase would not have been valid enough. Uh, it's it, it wasn't it wasn't enough. That's getting it from Asav. Asav doesn't have the right to decide who is the who is the continuation of the line, meaning it had to be declared by the generation before. So it might have been some sort of transaction on a brotherly level. But it seems very clear, and again, there's there's different theories about legally why this might have been necessary, that specifically the father, but even if we don't go to the legal precedents that some do to try and explain it, it seems very clear that if Yitzchak was still intent on declaring Esau the leader of the family, that was going to be uh, that was going to be the deal breaker, which is why Rivka and Yaakov have to then take it to another level. Uh, that there was a bracha that needed to be bestowed upon Yaakov himself, and that that whatever happened between him and Esau was sort of a private transaction, but it wouldn't have been enough. Uh, I think that it also makes sense that when you're speaking about, on, on one hand, it's becoming the continuation of the family of, of moving of passing the torch forward on the other hand you also do have to deal with the brother uh against whom you're sort of in competition with so the pora is the scene between the brothers and the blessing is the scene with Yitzchak. Esav gets he's related to that scene because he walks in and realizes what happens but that really is there's a transaction with Esav and there's a transaction albeit deceptively with with Yitzchak and so so both seem to have been have been needed so I really like everything you've said I think it really 
provides a good explanation as to why there would be this distinction between the the food, the b'chorah, and then the brachot. And I still want to say something different anyway. Yeah. I want to suggest, and it's not just me who suggests this, Drashot Haran, Rabbi Donisim Garoni, he said it long, centuries upon centuries before I did, that the b'chorah, this inheritance, this thing that goes to the heir of the family, comes later in the parsha, and we call it, nowadays we call it Birkat Avraham. And the text says this, and towards the end of the parsha, it says, literally, I'm going to give you the blessing of Avraham to you, to your children, with you, to inherit the land that you will dwell in that God gave to Avraham. And that's a really different blessing than that which Yitzchak gives to Yaakov when he ostensibly thinks that Yaakov is Esav. Yes. That bracha, mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, is much more about prosperity, and flourishing in terms of your daily life being one of um, wealth and contentment and ease, and even the bracha that then, the reserve bracha for Esav, when he says, maybe have a little bracha left for me, is again one of how we live and that we can live with some measure of um, viable and relatively easy sustenance. Birkat Avraham is about inheriting the land. It's about being the people that God is going to make numerous as the stars, right? It's a it's a different inheritance. It's a different bracha than the brachot that we call the brachot. Birkat Avraham is not contested in this parsha. So my question is, was Yaakov always supposed to get it? Or is this the thing that he bought from Esav and nobody ever contested it because maybe the family did know about the purchase. Maybe they rebuked them. Maybe they weren't in favor of it. But at this point, when, ya- when Yaakov is going to leave at the end of the Parsha, he gets the bracha. He's given, he's given it straight up, right? You get Berkat Avraham. Nobody says boo. Except for Esav's complaint, you tricked me twice. You tricked me twice for the brachot. You tricked me once for the brachot and once for the b'chorah. Not that they're the same thing, but that they're different things. One being Berkat Avraham, later, that's, or later and first, pardon me, right? The Bechorah, and then Ber- which be- we see manifest in Berkat Avraham. Mm-hmm. That's the inheritance. And the Bracha seems to be a thing that happens upon a father's, pardon me, just father's deathbed. Mm-hmm. We see it with Yaakov and his children. We see it with Moshe and the tribes. Right There's this pronouncement of who you're going to be as you go forward in the world. It's not to be part of the Jewish people. I'm using, these are anachronistic terms, right? Jewish people doesn't really mean something yet in Parshat Toldot. But it does for us when we talk about what is Birkat Avraham. What does it mean when we look outside in the land of Israel and we say, ah, this is the promise to Avraham manifest. Um, I think that that's what's going on here. And I I think it's not... Not the standard interpretation, which is why I was very glad to find that the Ran had said it long before I did. But I think it works. I think it answers these questions of how can it be that there's trickery, but there's also solution and resolution. And and at the end here, there's no, Yaakov's running for his life. But besides that, there's no contest over Birkat Avraham. Yaakov wants that, that thing that he didn't get from his birth order, because he does buy in 
to the family heritage. He wants the family heritage. He's willing to say, aha, I've got my brother tired, fatigued. He's coming in. Instead of offering him soup like a kindness, like a normal person would do, I'm going to finagle Birkat Avraham because I'm going to treat it better. I'm going to be the heir the way the family really wants it to be. So I think everybody is recognizing that this is, Esav is not the right person for Birkat Avraham, but he was born first. Hmm. So how do we get the Birkat Avraham, if I'm right, if the Ran is right, the Birkat Avraham is the Bechorah, then how do we get it to Yaakov? It's not the brachot that comes in when the, the blessings that are bestowed on the deathbed that are about prosperity and, please God, they should have easier lives. Okay. I truly believe this to be the case. Yes. I think it answers why Esav is so shattered. Because didn't he just sell it? Why is he so upset? Mm. And the answer is because he was supposed to get two things. Mm. He, the bachorah, he, 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 the bachor, was supposed to get two things. One, the inheritance of the bachor, the bachorah. And plus, Yitzchak had said to him, go out and make me this food and I'm going to bless you. And Rivka comes in and says, "Uh uh-huh, uh-uh, he's not going to get that blessing. I need that blessing to go to Yaakov. So there's, again, the shenanigans in this family are dramatic and soap operatic and so on, right? Not not the way we want people to treat each other necessarily. But the maneuvering is for the sake of, you know, Rivka truly believes, and, and we know her to be right, that Yaakov is supposed to be the heir, in fact, to both. And Yitzchak has a love of Esav that Rivka doesn't quite share, not to that degree, not to the way he perceives his son, that he wants to give him this bracha. Now, there are commentaries who say that Yitzchak really wanted it to go to Yaakov, and he's first most worried that he really has the wrong son, meaning the, the, there's a lot of, I would say, Talmudic thumbs that get... in come into play to try to figure out who knew what, when, and what did they want to do about it. Um, there's a really beautiful verse at the very end of the parsha when they send Yaakov out. They're sending Yaakov to go back to Padanaram. The brother of Rivka, Aim Yaakov Esav. It says Rivka is the, br- the mother of Yaakov and Esav. And that brings us back to the beginning of the Parsha where she's having this difficult pregnancy. She never doesn't love Esav. She just doesn't see him as that heir. And she's right. Wow. I think what's also interesting is the name Yaakov is used in this Parsha as a plan words to sort of mean to somewhat to trick or supplant or however you want to translate that word, right? Literally from the word heal, but here it means right, he initially grabs on in utero when they're exiting the utero uh, and and as you said. What's interesting is that the word, the word also means to follow, meaning to come after. And if we think a little bit here again, because we're really seeing the roots of who Yaakov is and then we'll, his personality will be revealed and sort of developed so much over the next Brakim is that he followed or he came second, but he's not the kind of person that, and he also listens to his mother and in that way he also follows, so to speak. But from here on in, he's nobody's follower. Uh, and Yaakov is this like fascinating sort of alchemy between someone who was carrying on the tradition 
but he but he has a lot of newness to him in a way that's very contrasting with his father Yitzchak, who you know, who his whole strength is to continue, and so. His name means to follow. It also means to deceive to a certain degree. We've spoken about that, uh, I think, at, at this point enough. But it means to follow. But from here on in, he's really going to be his own man, and he's going to be creating and sort of engineering a lot, a lot of a lot of different different scenarios. Um, and I guess I'm I'm also just thinking about as we as we end the parsha about this question of becoming the patriarch who continues this line. Uh, but starting it off in a way that's that's really just full of of all these difficulties of of the deception and of these negative feelings and being someone who's always on the run, which of course that's going to manifest itself in so many ways in the rest of Yaakov's life. He's going to spend most of his life on the run. And I guess I'm just thinking about the fact that we've seen already that being being the chosen messenger of God hasn't been a guarantee of anything it hasn't been a guarantee of having a lot of progeny it hasn't been a guarantee of having a life that's somewhat peaceful it kind of tends to feel like the opposite of then of all of all those things and I'm also just I'm just curious about that as we sort of like wind down how you think about I even would say emotionally or spiritually how you think about the, the this prism of Yaakov being the one who carries on the torch, but it be in this setting or, or emerging from this setting that's that's very troubled. I think Yaakov didn't have an easy life from the time that he's old enough to make that soup for his brother. I, you know, before that, we don't really know. But I think he didn't have an easy life. I think his being on the run is hard. I think being, um, being tricked by his future father-in-law is hard. I think the all of the things that happen afterwards, Parshio down the road, right? The fact that Yosef ends up in Egypt and he thinks he's dead, but he doesn't like there's so much pain, I think, in Yaakov as a person. Um I wanna suggest that that comfort isn't the solution. Comfort, as much as we might seek it or want it, it's not what Birkat Avraham is about. It's about being the chosen ones of God, the beloved. And I will say, just, I know we're not really in Navi. We're not really looking at the books of the prophets or the Haftarah for this Parsha. But Parsha Malachi, the, the Haftarah is from Malachi. And the it's really the second verse, but it's the first verse that has meat to it says Ahavtem etchem Amar Hashem God says that I loved you Vamartem Bame Ahavtem Halo Ach Esav Leakov Neum Hashem Vaohavet Yaakov. The statement is I don't really need to read the Hebrew. The statement in the in the Haftarah is Jacob have I loved. And then the implication is Isa Esav have I hated, right? The again that Ravyavod Sa'ir, they're never on a parallel they're never on a par but to be the beloved of god is something that i guess no other people can lay claim to so the fact that it's not always fun and it's not always easy maybe it's never easy certainly we can look at current events and it does not feel at all easy. yeah or maybe you have to achieve it in ways that sometimes look morally dubious to the outside but that the people doing it have a possess a certain understanding that that this is what has to happen not to read too much so why i like the half <laughs> Why I like the Haftarah as being part of the Parsha, right, is that it gives us the future generations and the attestation 
that God chose Yaakov, that for all of that subterfuge between Rivka and Yitzchak, and did Yaakov do the right or wrong thing? And maybe we don't know, but we have the prophet Malachi to tell us, yes, he did, because God loves Yaakov, and we are the people of Yaakov. We are his heirs, with his backbone, with his shenanigans, with his trickery, and with his hopefully good soup, right? Like all of it comes together, I think, in the way we as a people have inherited this tradition over burdensome, difficult, troublesome times. And as Malachi puts it, but with a lot of love. If God chose us, well, then we're chosen, and we need to choose that ourselves. And I think that's what Rivka is setting out to do. That's what Yaakov himself does. And that's what he does, I think, through the... I I can't speak for the upcoming... Parshot, you'll have other guests who will speak for them, but I think we'll see that as we go through the year. And thank you so much for this conversation. It's always always a pleasure, and I really think that in this conversation we we opened up questions that I'm not sure that we always leave open in that kind of way. And I think we've also I think you've also provided us with some interpretations of of these classic texts that we're that are important and that we'll continue to think about as we go forward in these episodes so thank you so much thank you it's a pleasure to be here it's a pleasure to talk with you a pleasure to learn with you i hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as i did i'm dr yosefa fogel rubel and this is one-on-one women talk torah a series brought to you by matan women's institute for torah study one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.